0: Father, it's good to be in the house of the Lord with your people. I wish we could all be in the same room together today, but this is how you have ordained it. And so we praise you, praise you whether your people are in the chapel or in Fellowship Hall or watching online. Lord, this is a glorious day to us. It's a kind of day that no unbeliever can appreciate or will ever really know, even if they're in our midst. They don't know why and we rejoice, but, oh, Father, I pray that you would open their eyes and send your Spirit to cause them to be born again. They would cry out to you for salvation, which you freely give by your grace through your Son, Jesus died on the cross for us and we might live forever with you. Until then, Lord, we know that you have called us to live in such a way that proclaims the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. And one of the practical manifestations of that reality as we live it is that our lives look differently, our families look Different. Our marriages in particular are quite different than what they were before we came to know you and what they are compared to what the world experiences, or at least what it should be. And this morning, Father, as your word speaks by your spirit to the men who are married in this congregation and contemplating marriage perhaps in the future. I pray that you would give us all hearts that are eager to hear and learn and be challenged. And may they and I leave today determined to think more deeply about how to apply these truths from your word to our marriages. And Father, we thank you and we praise you for this moment and ask you, Father, to speak by your word and speak through this unworthy vessel. We pray it all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We have been working our way through the book of Colossians, and we came to the part where we're talking about marriage and family. And as I have said before, uh, Colossians, for whatever reason, Paul just decided to put out little bullet statements, whereas the same Apostle Paul in the same jail cell in the same city at the same time decided He would write a letter to uh, the church of Ephesus, and maybe he thought that he didn't write enough in Colossians. And so he's filling in some of the blank spaces, and he expects that that letter will go to Colossae, and the Colossian letter would go to Ephesus. And so as we continue this morning looking at the biblical role of Christian husband, we need to remind ourselves that the whole thrust of Paul's teaching here is that the Christian marriage ought to be different than the non-Christian marriage. A Christian marriage ought to be marked by an apparent and obvious joy. The satisfaction and sense of oneness that Adam and Eve lost when they were thrust out of paradise should be reclaimed by everyone who has been reconciled to God by the work of the second Adam, namely Jesus Christ. So I ask, what what disrupts and fractures the unity of a man and a woman besides sin? And what can reunite a man and wife more than forgiving grace? You see, embracing the gospel of Christ is not the same as, as affirming that you believe a set of religious propositions. To embrace the gospel is to agree to a new paradigm for living. Obviously, to embrace the gospel is, first of all, that you lay all of your hope on the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteous life and his bloody death and resurrection on our behalf. But after that, we lean on him, we trust him. We understand that what the gospel now calls us to do is to live a life that is consistent with the gospel we once received. And so to embrace the gospel is to embrace not only salvation for eternal life, but it is also embracing a new kind of life. Having received grace, we now minister grace. Having received forgiveness, we now offer and request from one another forgiveness. Having received mercy, we now grant mercy. Having been saved by sacrificial love, we serve in sacrificial love. These are some of the gospel characteristics that ought to be apparent and obvious in our lives. And they ought to be especially evident in our marriages. Can you imagine what it would be like if all professing Christians lived by what we profess, that we would live the gospel out to its fullest in our marriages. If we lived in a manner consistent with the gospel in our marriages, there would be no statistic for Christian divorce. It would simply read in the newspaper, non-Christian divorce rate, 50%. Christian divorce rate, zero. It would literally be that dramatic a difference. And it wouldn't just be that marriages would stay together by the white-knuckled force of agonizing determination. They would stay together because they delight to do so. If you want to reclaim the joy of marriage and turn paradise lost into paradise regained, you have to return to God's original design. Because God has designed that his glory be made manifest in the joy of Christ-saturated marital love. This is precisely what Paul is speaking of in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. He doesn't spill a lot of ink explaining the wife's role in this regard, but he has a lot to say to the husbands. He has a lot to say about a husband's responsibility to his wife. And so what should a Christian husband know? If in a joyful Christian marriage, a wife is to willingly rank herself under her husband in honor, how is a Christian husband to relate to his wife? Well, last week we learned that a husband is to serve his wife by loving her like Christ loves the church. And that means he loves her with sacrificial love. It also means that he loves her with purifying love, an attentive love, and a relentless love. Now, you'll remember how Paul calls us to a sacrificial love in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. If you're open there to Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 25, where he simply says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And together, we learned last time that a sacrificial love is a love that is modeled after the love that Jesus has for his church, his bride, his people, his wife. It is a love that dies to self and lives for the needs of others. It is the same kind of love by which Christ gave himself over to death on our behalf. A quick reminder of an important term here is It's always relevant when we come to this passage. I know I've mentioned this before, but I've thought about it some more since then. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I already mentioned a couple of texts, but let me mention a couple more. Here in verse 2, we will read, um, look at chapter 5, verse 2. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The word gave himself, paradidomi, means to deliver over. It can also mean to betray In Matthew 27, verse 26, we read that Pontius Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. Same word. Mark 3, 19 points to Judas Iscariot as the one who betrayed him. Same word, paradidomi, to give up, to give over. Romans 1, where Paul talks about God's judgment of abandonment. Wish we had time to talk about that. On a nation, or on a people, or on a person, God gave them over to their sexual desires, their homosexual desires, and their depraved mind. To these impulses, God gave them over. It's the judgment of abandonment, but it's the same word, to give over. And Romans 8.32 refers to God as the one who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up. For us all. It's the same word, to give over. And the point is that the love Jesus lavished upon people was a love that. Are, are you ready for this? The love that Jesus lavished on his bride. The love that Jesus lavished on his people is a love that expected to suffer. So let me just do it a little aside here. I think one of the primary reasons why marriages go astray, Christian marriages, is because we don't know how to suffer in a manner that pleases the Lord. Can we all just acknowledge that both parties of every marriage are sinners? Can we acknowledge that because they are sinners, they will sin against one another? And can we further acknowledge That hurts really bad, and we suffer because of it. We don't know how to suffer. But you know what? The Bible repeatedly, again and again and again, teaches us how to suffer. I wish we had time to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. It's all about learning to suffer well in in life. And I would say that it applies to marriage, Jesus lavished upon his people a love that expected to suffer. He he didn't commit to loving as long as it didn't cost him too much or hurt too bad. His was a love that anticipated and even expected to suffer. And so, men, the real test of your love is not how you feel. It's how you respond when the relationship becomes painful When things don't go your way, when your expectations are not fully met, when you murmur, will you murmur? Will you murmur and complain or lash out with words or with hands? These are all things that you will live to regret. Or will you bear up under the pain and choose to respond in love? There are so many scriptures Romans 12 comes to mind. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That whole passage is how to deal with with people who cause you to suffer. Man, we are called to love our wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you love your wife like that? Are you shocked when she does something that hurts you? Second, This text teaches that a Christian husband's determined to reclaim and maintain a joyful marriage will approach his wife with a purifying love. Not just a sacrificial love, but a purifying love. Look at verses 26 and 27. 26, uh, let me just read 25 again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You want to know a secret? A spiritual secret? Here it is. And we should learn to live it. The path to happiness and the path to holiness are the same path. The path to happiness, and by that I mean joy. The path to joy and the path to holiness are the same path for the believer. You want a marriage to be the experience of paradise regained? Then pursue holiness with her and for her. Be holy And pursue holiness. Banish anything from your life, men, that is unholy. And bring into your family holiness. Holiness that is manifest in your life, your conversation, your habits. You see, the only way Jesus could know the joy of being eternally joined with his bride was by making her holy, even as he is holy. His ultimate act of personal sacrifice was expressly for the purpose of cleansing us and making us, first of all, declaring us holy and then making us holy. And so when he comes for his bride on the great wedding day of the Lamb, she will be brought forth in all her glory. There is no more beautiful wife than a holy wife, and I could just say to you, young single men who are here, you should be looking for a woman who, who shines forth the beauty of a holy life. Not that she's been perfect. Once in a while, someone will ask me, "Is, is, is it okay? I mean, if I marry, if I marry someone who has a past of unholiness?" to which I often respond, well, Jesus did. We are all unholy. Nevertheless, what you should be looking for is not outward beauty. It fades. It goes away eventually. But inner beauty just gets more and more beautiful. Now, I know if she's listening, I'm going to embarrass her when I say this. But if you want a real picture of that, Go visit Marge Price. Now there is a beautiful woman. She's 80 now. And she's mentally sharper than I've ever been in my life. (laughs) And she loves Jesus the way that I want to. She's a beautiful, beautiful woman of God. And the woman of God will radiate not perfection completely, But one day, his bride will, when we see him face to face, we will become like him when we see him as he is. And on that day, his bride will be intrinsically beautiful. And how will she, the church, be brought to this state of radiant holiness? Well, he will have brought her to it. He will have made propitiation by his own sacrifice and applied it through the mediating priestly ministry of justifying, sanctifying grace. This is a very proactive thing on the part of the perfect husband, Jesus Christ. Even so, a husband is to serve with a purifying love that bears the fruit of holiness. He is to be the foremost instrument of her sanctification. If she grows to be a woman of great spiritual beauty, it should be because her husband has been a humble partner in developing that beauty. And it will be because he let the word of Christ dwell richly within him. A throwback to Colossians 3. That's what Paul means by the washing of water with the word, verse 27. And so men, the word of God is the agent of cleansing and beautifying for Christ's bride and for yours. Now if you've been around here very long at all, you've probably heard me say and pray this statement we're, We're asking whatever I'm asking for, for the glory of God and our own joy. And this, beloved, is an excellent text to support that way of thinking. I'm telling you, the path of holiness is the path to happiness. And notice why, verse 27, Christ washes and purifies his bride with the word. It is so that he might present her to who? himself. I mean, picture this. Here's a wedding, right? We've had many weddings right here on this platform in this building, and what happens? Well, the the whole congregation gathers. People come from all over, and the groom comes out with the preacher, and then here comes the bride, right, or whatever. Sometimes young couples play the craziest songs now, and never mind. But the, the bride comes in with her dad, and her dad presents the bride to the groom. But here, Jesus, who created the bride, has propitiated God's wrath against her with his own blood, has saved her, and has been sanctifying her her whole life. On that day, he will present her to himself. For his glory and for his own eternal joy, He does it for himself. And this is Paul's argument here. Brothers, do this for yourself. Do it for your own good. We're going to see this again in verse 28, but it's important to emphasize, men, that the ministry of loving your wife and your family for that matter by serving them and cleansing and beautifying them with the word of God is not just your duty. It is to be your delight, because the benefits of it are so profound. It is not just for her, though it is for her. It is for you. Happy wife, happy life. <laughs> well, that's not in the text, but it's, it may be true. Maybe we could say, holy wife, happy life. Paul even says in First Corinthians eleven seven. Your wife is your glory. So don't think of yourself as much of a man unless her godliness is due at least in part to your ministry of holiness to her. Man, is your wife more like Christ because she's married to you? Or is she more like Christ in spite of the fact that she's married to you? Does the word of God hold a central place in your marriage at home? Do you talk about it? Do you memorize it? No excuse now, we have a plan. Do you read it? Do you model obedience to, you, to it? Do you address sin graciously and gently? That's the high calling of a Christian husband. And and many other examples that I had here that I had to cut for the sake of time today I would just say, men, if your goal is to see paradise lost become paradise regained, love your wife with a purifying love. The third kind of love that God calls us to, men, is an attentive love. Look at verses 28 through 30. Verse 28 says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now there's he's saying it again, right? As your own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. When Paul, when his readers in Ephesus and the surrounding Roman provinces, including Colossians, would read these words for the first time and they would no doubt be shocked. I mean, they all came out of paganism. Everyone was a first century Christian and most of them were first generation Christians. After all, I mean, this is, the, the, the difference is, is stark. It was revolutionary. I mean, the Roman husband was the god of his household. The family existed to serve him. And no one was expected to be more attentive to him than his wife. What's more, if she didn't perform to his liking, he could do away with her and get himself a new wife who would worship him as he wishes. By the way, man, if you live in such a way that is constantly demanding your wife serve you, you are in essence calling her to worship you. This is idolatry in the extreme. But it's not so. It's not that way with a Christian marriage. The calling of a Christian husband is to die to self and live for the one that he loves. He is not to be the God of his home. He is to be the chief servant, even as he leads. Perhaps you've been told that to be a husband and father is to hold the highest rank and authority and privilege in the home, but that's not, that's not God's way. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not how Jesus treats his bride. Now that you have come to Christ, the whole model is turned upside down. You are not to treat others as if you were the highest in rank, and they are the lowest. Rather, you are to humble yourself, and take up, as it were, the basin and the towel, as Jesus did, while at the same time he was saying, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. If I have served you in this manner, you should serve one another in this manner. In other words, rather than viewing your wife as the means of having your own needs met, Now you view yourself as the one responsible for meeting her needs. How concerned should a man be about caring for his wife? Well, how concerned are you about caring for your own body? Isn't that what Paul is saying here? I mean, let me me give you a, a few illustrative questions. You ready for number one? You might want to write this down. Who dressed you this morning? before you came to church? You did. I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Who brushed your teeth this morning? You did. Who fed you breakfast? You did. Who bathed you and combed your hair? You did. And why did you do that? I'll tell you why. Because you love yourself. And you didn't want to show up here looking like a slob. And people stepping away from you because your breath smells bad. You love yourself. You love yourself. It's why you do those things. You care more about how you look and how your breath smells and how your hair appears and how hungry you feel than, any, any, than anybody else does. You go to great lengths to make sure everything that needs to be done for you gets done, you make significant sacrifices even in, in, in time and money to attend what you need, in other words, I mean this is this is the definition of love. Remember the definition it 's got a little twist on it here because you 're doing it for yourself, but here 's the definition, as we 've heard it ten thousand times here, and I know you 're sick of hearing it but to love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to no matter how I feel. To love is to give. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. To love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to no matter how I feel. And that's the kind of love You lavish upon yourself before you come to church or go to the office or take your girlfriend out on a date or that'll be the last date if you don't. (laughs) And that's exactly what God is calling you to do for your wife. Why? Because your marriage is supposed to be a living picture of the joyful union of Christ and his church. We are to serve our wives according to how Christ serves the church. And how does Christ serve the church? Well, when she needs strength, he gives her his. When she needs encouragement, he gives her that. When she needs hope, he avalanches her with promises that he will keep. And so with everything else she needs, every promise of God Paul says, Is yes and amen to her. Just as God supplies all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4 19, the Christian husband seeks to supply all the needs of his wife, even to his own hurt. You may have to give up some things, you may have to cancel that appointment, you may have to stay home from work, you may have to fork over money that you were hoping to use for yourself. Men, something is terribly wrong if you look at your wife merely as cook, housekeeper, educator of your children, and occasional companion. She is rather a God-given treasure to be loved, cared for, nourished, and cherished. The word nourish here, by the way, verse 29, means to provide for her physically, her physical needs. I've been amazed at men that I've counseled over the years who didn't have a job, weren't looking for a job. You just want to invite them to the back alley to have a conversation. <laughs> to nourish means you provide. It means you do whatever it takes to provide, even if you can't have the job that you really think you deserve. It means giving her all that she needs to fulfill the role that God has called her to. The word cherish is the other word, and it means to show tender love and physical affection, to let her know beyond a doubt that she is your treasure, that you are committed to her for her encouragement, her comfort, her protection, her security, that you love her and adore her above every other woman on the planet. That's the way Christ loves his church. He doesn't love all men the same. He doesn't love all women the same. He loves his bride in a way that is vastly different than the rest of the world. The Lord has bound himself instricably to his bride. We are in union with Christ. You see the picture of marriage? We are in union with Christ. A lack of care for her would be a lack of care for himself. Verse 30 says, that's because we are members of his body. You see the argument? He's saying, you should love your wife as your own body. Why? Because Christ loves us as part of his own body. That's how much he loves us. And that's why he loves us like he does. And you know, this doesn't mean that you give your wife everything she wants. Sometimes things she wants, she probably shouldn't have. And the same with you. And your wife should raise an eyebrow and say something if your husband's going to want something and pursue something that's sinful. You see, the Lord makes no distinction in this regard between himself and us. He considers us one with him so that if we suffer, he suffers. If we rejoice, he rejoices. If we are in need, he feels that need and meets it. Likewise, as he seeks glory for himself... Jesus, that is, he seeks the glory of his church. As he seeks to own his joy, he seeks it in the joy of his church. The author of Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And what was that joy? Joy was But one day, on the appointed day, a host too great to be numbered would be reconciled to God and brought to his heavenly home forever throughout all the ages by the ultimate sacrifice of his own body. That's what it means to love your wife in an attentive way. We are called to be just as attentive to our to her needs as we are to our own needs. Your wife should often hear you say, can I help you with that? Can I do that for you? Can I get that? I love you. Do you need anything? Is there some way I can serve you? Loving Loving our wives is like loving ourselves. Pursuing her good is the same as pursuing our own good. Providing for her joy fills us with joy. Why? Because, listen carefully, together we are one. John Piper writes If you live for your private pleasure at the expense of your spouse, you are living against yourself and destroying your joy. But if you devote yourself with all your heart to the holy joy of your spouse, you will also be living for your joy and making a marriage after the image of Christ and his church. And so the golden rule of marriage is, you shall love your wife as you love yourself. Men, are you loving your wife with an attentive love? Are you sensitive to her moods, her needs, her nonverbal communication? Are you courteous to her, Are you kind, Are you careful with your words, with her? Do you communicate? Are you sharing your life with her, with words? Do you frequently tell her, I love you? Prof. Hendricks at Dallas Seminary said he, he had access to professional football players and he was counseling one who was having stru- uh, trouble with his marriage. And he said, uh, so your wife says that you never say to her, I love you. And he said, I said it at the altar. If anything changes, I'll let her know. That should not be (laughs) our modus operandi, man. Are you providing for her needs? Are you doing your best to provide a nice home environment for her to work in? She is a tremendously challenging assignment from the Lord. Are you sensitive to that? Or are you only sensitive to the challenges you have? Are you taking it all seriously? These are all ways to approach your wife with an attentive love. Finally, God calls us not only to a sacrificial love, a purifying love, and an attentive love. He also calls us to a relentless love. Look at verses 31 through 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. He's quoting Moses here. And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then Paul says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Men, if you desire to see paradise lost become paradise regained in your marriage, you need to love, live... Love your wife with a relentless love. In these three verses, Paul is addressing both the unity and the permanence of marriage. And really the exclusivity as well. He takes takes us all the way back to Genesis to make his point. I mean, after creating the first man and the first woman in the paradise of Eden, God calls them to a one-flesh relationship, a unity that is more intimate and more permanent than any other relationship to a man or woman, including their own parents. In fact, in God's mind, to enter into a one-flesh relationship of marriage means to be both the beginning of one union and the dissolution of another. Union. Not relationship, but union. One relationship begins, the other one is cut off. Husbands and wives are to leave father and mother and cleave to one another. There are two things in marriage that can cause more harm than a lot of other things. I don't want to say than anything else, but two things. So first of all, a husband or wife who can't break free from mama's apron strings, that's bad, bad And if you're a young man, especially, it's bad. Stop it. Your wife wants you to stop it. And so does the Lord. And second, the second thing that can damage a relationship in the context of this discussion is a mom or dad who can't keep their nose out from under the tent of their newly married son or daughter. Shall I say that again? Moms and dads, keep your nose out from under the tent of your married son or daughter. If they want your counsel, they'll ask for it. If they don't ask for it, just smile and give them hugs, even if they desperately need counsel and they're not getting it. But the scriptures make it clear that when a man or woman marries, they're to sever the ties to home. In marriage, a new family has begun, and as far as authority and responsibility go, the old connections to mom and dad are over. Now, don't get me wrong, parents are always to be loved and honored and cared for, but they are no longer in the driver's seat when it comes to authority and decisions in the relationship. On the day a couple is married, the lines of loyalty and devotion shift from father and mother to husband and wife. They each sever one set of ties and establish a new one. In fact, the new loyalty is henceforth stronger and more binding than the old one ever was, and not just to parents, but to children as well. Eventually you'll have children, and this is another issue in marriage that causes problems when you're more devoted to your children than you are to your husband or to your wife. It's a damaging thing. I've many times told my children, um, I am raising you to leave the home and not stay in it. The only permanent relationship in this arrangement is between your mother and I. Uh, your, Your time here is limited, and short. <laughs> and you may come back, but that should be short as well. <laughs> Many times a lack of joy in marriage stems from the fact that either the husband or the wife's primary loyalty and confidence remains to their mom or dad or even, and, and can I just throw this in, if you are in a blended family Loyalty to your children can kill your marriage. In this case, with regard to parents, they prefer their parents' counsel and advice to their husband or wife. They're more devoted to meeting parental expectations than to the needs of their spouse. They share more intimately with their parents than they do with one another. And this is almost always a cause of resentment, alienation, and conflict not to mention bitterness. But that's not the way God designed marriage to function. To leave means to sever those old lines of authority and responsibility. To cleave means to glue or cement yourself permanently to your mate for life. For life. For what? For life, as long as you both do live It means that no matter how difficult life becomes, you never run home to mama. You never complain to your parents about the behavior of your mate. You continue to pursue your mate with a relentless love. Now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek out counsel from someone who can give you biblical advice. But that probably shouldn't be your mom and dad. It ought to be someone who can have an objective view. How relentless should your love for your wife be, men? It should be as relentless as Christ's love for his church. Have you ever considered how much sin and grief the Lord has to put up with with unfaithful people like me and you? Imagine if he he cut and ran the first time we did something hurtful or sinful against him. And yet the thought of severing the relationship never crosses his mind. Romans 5, Paul says, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Your wife is a sinner. You ready to die to self for her, even though she sins against you? That's the call. Even while we are belittling him, he gave his life for us. Even when we are unfaithful to him, he remains faithful to us. That's a relentless love. In Romans 8, Paul asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I mean, he covers all the bases. In-laws? No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who, what? Who loved us. It is a love that is permanent and unwavering, no matter the circumstances. I'll give you an illustration. My time is gone, but this will be the last thing. Several years ago, Robertson McQuilkin wrote a book called A Promise Kept. McQuilkin had been the president of Columbia University, prestigious school. He had been the president for decades, but something happened when his wife's alzheimer's reached its peak he chose to give up his very successful career to serve his wife let me just tell you how he tells the story okay <clears throat> this is this is quoting him now eventually i had to approach the board of trustees with the need to begin my search or their search for my successor I told them that when Muriel needed me full-time, she would have me. When the time came, the decision was firm, and it didn't take any heavy-duty calculations. Soon after the decision was announced, I wrote a letter to our constituency. Here's what his letter said. 22 years is a long time, and how do you say goodbye to friends who do not wish to leave? The decision to come to Columbia was the most difficult I have ever had to make. The decision to leave 22 years later, though painful, was one of the easiest. Let me explain, he writes. My dear wife, Muriel, had been in failing health for about 12 years. So far, I have been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibility at Columbia but recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time that I am away from her. It's not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes searching for me when I leave the home. And so it is clear to me that she needs me now, full time. Perhaps it would help Perhaps it would help you understand if I share with you what I shared in chapel at the time of the announcement of my resignation. The decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago, when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So... As I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be a grim and stoic thing, but there's more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual, continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful person. Brothers and sisters, that is a relentless love. If you want a biblical picture of it, go to the Old Testament minor prophet Hosea. Here is a love that is resentless. And men, this is the kind of love with which God has called us to love our wives. It is a love that is sacrificial. It is a love that is purifying. It is a love that is attentive. And it is a love that is relentless. It is a love that we cannot offer our wives if we are not living a life that is filled with the Spirit. But it is the kind of love that will fill our homes with joy. And it's the kind of love that will reveal to the world and to our children how much Christ loves the church. Mandy, do you want your marriage to move from paradise lost to paradise gained, regained? Then love your wife. Don't insist that she love you. Love her. Love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. My dear friends, let it be known once again that Christians proclaim the preeminence of Christ to the world in this way, by how we follow and how we lead. Let's pray. Lord, we know that on our very best days, as we are pursuing these things, we will we will never be perfect even as you are perfect. And yet is yet, Lord, we know that you don't expect us to be perfect. You just expect us to be growing and repenting and growing and repenting and growing and repenting and somehow your word tells us that is pleasing to you. And so may we be found faithful, O oh Lord. Every man in this room who is married, loving his wife, no better way to love your children than to love your wife. no better way to show the world what God is like than to live in a life, live in a marriage that is that redounds and shines forth the glory.